of June, Year of Our Lord 2022, continues to roll right along. This is Heard Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for joining us, however you're watching or listening. We sure appreciate it. A lot to cover on the show today. Going to be overseas a lot, take a little break from all the stuff going on domestically, although we're going to open with a very important domestic story. Uh, Guest on the show today, Alice Watson-Brown returns to the program. Been a minute, one of our great UK Young Voices contributor. We're going to do uh, two segments. The first, we're going to get on the UK government a little bit. Uh, the things going on over there, politics, uh, Boris Johnson, Keir Starmer, cost of living, the economy, the mess that is politics over there. We're going to talk about all that with her. But in the second segment, uh, it's her turn to get on us here in America a little bit. She's got a piece out about the FDA. Remember them? Uh, who have far from covered themselves in glory with things like the pandemic, uh, they have once again continued their relentless crusade against things like vaping, against things like methanol cigarettes. Uh, they're talking about age restrictions, things like this. We're going to get into that with her, Alice Watson-Brown, on the program today. Thrilled to have her back. Um, a drug defendant went to court in Alabama, and his choice of wardrobe has brought back one of my favorite before they were memes, we just called them funny pictures and dumb crook news, uh, brought up a new meme. We'll get into that in a little bit. Also, our end of the uh, show segment where we try to do something uplifting, since we're going to be talking about cost of living in the UK, we're going to talk about the charitable giving in the UK being up. We'll end the program with that. Also, a story out of NATO, uh, Finland and Sweden. It looks like there's been an agreement reached to get them into NATO. Turkey was holding it up. Turkey's now announcing that there's an agreement. They're not going to hold it up. That means Erdogan got something. We'll deal with that in just a little bit. But first, let's talk about truth for a minute. And we're going to go back down to Uvalde. No, I'm not over it. No, I'm not going to get over it. No, I'm not going to shut up about it. There's something very, very wrong and rotten here. Um, But let's start uh, with Tolstoy. What does that got to do with anything? Well, he knew a little something about deceptive governments and brutal police states and things like this. Uh, in one of his diary writings, he wrote this. He said, progress consists, this is Leo Tolstoy, not in the increase of truth, but in the freeing it from its wrappings. The truth is obtained like gold, not by letting it grow bigger, but by washing it off from it everything that is not gold. We live in a truth time where we have access to all the information of recorded human history in the palm of our hands. We talk about it on Herd Tell all the time. We've never had more information. We've never had less knowledge. And most of it is because people can pick and choose what they want to believe. What's that got to do with Uvalde? Keep that quote in mind that you have to uncover the truth. It has to be dug out and polished and the bad stuff removed. Washington Post, a month after 19 children and two educations were killed at Robb Elementary School, a picture is emerging of a disastrous police response in which officers from several law enforcement agencies waited for an hour outside an unlocked classroom, which they lied about and said was locked, where children were trapped with the teacher. But journalists who have flooded to Uvalde, Texas, from across the country to tell the story have faced near-constant interference, intimidation, and stonewalling from some of the authorities, and not only bikers claiming to have police sanction. 
Journalists have been threatened with arrest for, quote unquote, trespassing outside public buildings. They've been barred from public meetings and refused basic information about what the police did during the May 24th attack. After several early error field news conferences, officials have routinely turned down interview requests and refused to hold news briefings. The situation has been made even more fraught by the spider web of local and state agencies involved in responding to and investigating the shooting, some of which now blame each other for the chaos. Quote, our reporters have covered the Sunderland Springs and the Fort Hood shootings, and some are very experienced having been embedded with the military in Afghanistan, Iraq, and covering revolutions in Latin America, and none of them remember an experience like this, said Mark Devuzian, editor-in-chief of the San Antonio Express News. The interference was so intense and without an identifiable public safety purpose. Devuzian has complained to the Uvalde city leaders and some more police chiefs, one of whom apologized, he said, some of his journalists, nevertheless, ask not to be sent back to Uvalde or confess to feeling guilty for having worked there. The harassment has become so bad, the newspaper's photo director took photographs to document the treatment by the police. Police were documented, reportedly obstructing photographers in public areas over the following days, sometimes by standing or parking vehicles directly in front of the cameras. Both the Texas Department of Public Safety officials and Uvalde police did not respond for request comments for this specific stories. The police are not letting us work, said Antonio Guillen, a photographer for the Univision station in San Antonio. We were seen as enemies. Meanwhile, law enforcement agencies have resisted releasing any information that could shed light on how the police response to the attack form. DeRosian said the information crisis in Uvalde began the moment school officials posted a notice on the Facebook that Robb Elementary School had been locked down. There were no briefings by the local police, no statements of fact and few, if any, returned phone calls. The first public address came not from local authorities, as is common, but from the Texas governor several hours after the carnage ended. It is not unusual for public information to be lacking in the aftermath of a catastrophe, but the pattern of miscommunication, stonewalling, intimidating, and Uvalde has surprised even the most seasoned journalists with decades of experience. State officials held a disastrous news conference two days after the attack in which Texas Department of Public Safety spokesman Victor Escalon ignored pleas to provide any information in Spanish. And this is especially true in Uvalde, where the population is mostly Hispanic and lacked basic information, such as how long it took the police to arrive after the first 911 call. Could anybody have gotten there sooner, he told the reporters. you got to understand, small town. Small town should speed up the response. In the weeks since, officials have refused to release any information that might explain why officers missed opportunity after opportunity to confront the attacker and potentially save lives or why the stories have changed. It goes on to explain here in this Washington Post piece, um, the Texas Tribune ProPublica, the San Antonio Express News, they are trying and jointly have submitted 70 requests for public information and partial releases, and they're getting stonewalled on it. The mayor of Uvalde last week accused state authorities of selectively releasing information to scapegoat law enforcement. No, they're doing that themselves. Remember that Tolstoy quote we started with? Progress consists not in the increase of truth, but in freeing it from the wrappings. The wrappings here in Uvalde are in bureaucracy. And the bureaucracy just happens to be wearing guns or being from a mayor's office or having city council or whatever the other trappings are. Government is inefficient bureaucracies get people killed bureaucrats with guns showed up at Uvalde and we see what happened and now they're going to stonewall they're going to bureaucratize they're going to create chaos and they're going to hope the world forgets and goes away now hopefully these reporters stay on it but one quick look at your timeline will tell you the truth most people have moved on and they've almost started to forget because that's how bureaucracies work they just grind you down till you don't care anymore but we do 
and we're going to keep on it. Truth is obtained like gold by not letting it grow bigger, but by washing off from it everything that isn't gold. That's what we do here. We turn down the noise. We're going to keep washing. We're going to keep seeking the truth. More Hertel right after this. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. All right, overseas. Uh, we've been talking about the fallout from Russia's illegal, immoral, and quite frankly, uh, just awful war in Ukraine. One of them is uh, NATO is growing, despite Putin's lies about him invading to try to keep NATO at bay, which doesn't make any sense, by the way, because if he takes Ukraine, he would get more NATO neighbors, not less of them, but we'll deal with that some other time. Uh, two Nordic countries, Turkey, Finland, and Sweden have all been locked in a disagreement because Finland and Sweden want to join NATO. Now, Turkey, of course, is not a Nordic country, but they were holding this up. Uh, Turkey has kind of been a problem for NATO for a lot of reasons. One is its dictator, um, Erdogan, uh, is kind of playing both sides against the middle here. He's been mostly an ally of Putin, but has pushed back on a few things to try to establish himself on the world stage. Turkish drones have been very important to the Ukrainian military, but Turkey likes to be the problem child in NATO because it gets them what they want as Erdogan has expanded his power inside of his own country. Uh, let's go to the Guardian. A last-minute agreement has been reached between Turkey, Finland, Sweden to allow the two Nordic countries to become NATO members on the eve of the Military Alliance Summit in Madrid. This has long been uh, expected. We've been covering here on Hertel. NATO said a trilateral deal has been reached between uh, Erdogan, President Nincinto of Finland, and the Swedish Prime Minister, Madalena Andersson, in the Spanish capital. Um, long story short here, uh, Erdogan wanted concessions. He's apparently got them now. We probably won't find out what is exactly involved here. The public story he was pitching was that he wanted help with terrorist organizations like the PKK down on his uh, borders. Now, the problem, of course, with Erdogan is anybody he doesn't like will get labeled terrorists and as part of the PKK. Not that the PKK doesn't have terroristic elements. We understand that. But Erdogan uh, likes to be a dictator. He's controlling power. So you got to be careful with somebody like that using terrorism because he uses it like Russia does, like China does. Anybody he doesn't like is automatically a terrorist, and then he has an excuse to go shoot him. So we got to be a little careful here. But apparently there has been some kind of agreement reached. Something to keep an eye on. It's good that NATO is expanding. Uh, Sweden and Finland have long been allies of NATO and America and the Western alliances. So this makes sense. It also shows you that the threat of Russian aggression is moving things in a way that the largest that is kind of set in and the uh, lack of care that most of Europe has had for issues like this since the end of the Cold War has ended. 
it is a new era indeed. We'll keep track of the story. Many others, the full stories in the Guardian, you want to read it all. We'll link to it in the short notes and more Heard Tell right after this. Okay, it's been a minute. She hadn't been here since March. Thrilled to have her back, our friend from over in the UK. Alice Watson-Brown has returned to her tell. How are you, ma'am? Glad to have you back. I'm really well, thank you. I'm fresh out of university. I finished my degree and uh, just kind of recover from it and have a good summer and just chill out, I think. Yeah, it's got to be a good feeling, doesn't it? Um, While we're on the subject, we talk about uh, people moving around the UK. Y'all got yourself a rail strike going on. Uh, for the American audience, because the culture is different, mass transit is a much bigger deal in the UK than it is here, because we're such a much bigger country, more spread out. Uh, there's two sides to these things, of course. There's the practical side and there's the political side. Just give us both. Practically, what is this rail strike doing? And politically, what is happening with it? Well, practically, um, it's stopping millions of people from getting around the country and getting to work. And it is basically a protest in the context of inflation, cost of living, the fact that public sector workers in the UK haven't received a pay rise in line with this huge, you know, this the inflation crisis, uh, whilst MPs seem to have increased their pay rise around two grand, I think, uh, in the last two years. So there's that kind of inequality. And then politically, in the UK, the trade unions uh, say we're going to strike we want the government to give us what we want. We want more rights for our workers. We want more pay for our workers. And it's it's basically trying to emotionally blackmail the government through, you know, emotive language in the way that, you know, it's workers versus, you know, the the elite and the state. It's this, you, you can tell what their political motivation is. Um, and it's incredibly disruptive. Whether you support it or deny it, no one can say that it's not disruptive. Um, and what's interesting, though, is that people usually if you a rail strike pre-COVID um, would happen, people would be mad taking taxis everywhere. This, everyone would be walking to work, cycling to work. But now you walk through the streets and it's really empty because people have started working from home. And especially it's a really sunny week. People don't want to be going to the office. They'll just say, I'm just going to work from home. I mean, my family have done that. Um, So whether the effect it has is going to be as widespread and as sort of felt by the consumer this time is up for debate. Um, But the popularity of commuting by car and working from home, as I said, could well see passengers now just desert railways and never to return, especially given that, you know, they're not nationalized in the UK. So prices can really vary um you can pay 200 pounds to get a train to edinburgh in scotland when it's cheaper to fly there via paris it doesn't make sense yeah and of course the backdrop here is interesting and the timing is really interesting because you have you know front page of the times today uk inflation hits 40 year high uh cost of living is dominating the headlines it uh dominated prime minister questions this morning 
th- this is something that's affecting absolutely everybody. So the question, of course, is, and I'm not against unions as a rule, but uh, strikes are about timing and strikes are about public sentiment. That's really what a strike is for. Everybody's hurting right now. This may not be the time to fly that flag of, hey, we want a little extra when these folks are probably doing just a little bit better than folks in the Midlands or in the outs parts of the country where, number one, this doesn't affect them as much. And number two is they're going to watch it on TV and go, what are they thinking? Everybody's hurting here. Is that fair or is that the common sentiment? I think there's I think that is definitely one way of looking at it. And in a way, you you could be right. However, I think they have timed it possibly quite well because there is everyone is hurting right now as you said and what better way to go up against the government and all this inflation and this this grievance than to support a very disruptive anti-government protest and it's not just the rail strikers the the rail workers and their, their strike teachers are threatening to strike nurses like nurses so all across the public sector there is this this you know they want to there's this impediment between the rulers and the workers. Um, But I suppose one way you could spin this, which a lot of people might disagree, is that this could be good for Prime Minister Johnson because it distracts himself, it distracts the press anyway, from anything to do with Partygate, anything to do with the latest palaver with his wife, Carrie Johnson, um, anything, any misdemeanors in his office that have really... Um, undermined uh, opinion of him specifically within the Conservative Party. Um, So maybe this could be a uniting factor for the Conservatives and, you know, take tension away from, you know, the leadership election and the vote of no confidence. It depends on how he handles it. And currently how he's handling it is ostracizing the leader of the opposition. So Sakir Starmer of the Labour Party and the Labour Party, um, it's the most interesting. I th- I personally think it's the most interesting party in in the UK. They are they used to be the parties of the trade unions. Their leadership elections, their internal structure used to be so heavily dominated by the trade unions uh, and and their leaders and how they could really choose which leader got elected and how much influence they had in in drafting policies. And Sakir Starmer hasn't said anything. He hasn't been clear about it and. The fact that he's not made a clear stand when his MPs are out there on the picket lines really speaks about the state of the Labour Party right now. So Johnson really could use this as it is as to his advantage to present a, you know, united conservative government. Let's talk about those Labour folks for a minute, because um, now I'm an American. So just go real slow and use small words. Explain this to me. Maybe when you put the U in Labour, it changes things. But we had a really interesting scene with the Labor Party where you have Keir Starmer and the leadership and the front bench telling the back bench that they shouldn't be seen on the picket lines. Yeah. Now, I'm not exactly a Labor supportive, but if you're the Labor Party and there's a Labor strike, that seems like something that would be in your wheel. I, I just kind of shook my head. I'm like, that doesn't even make sense. What, what are they doing over there? <laughs> it's a symptom of a wider identity crisis within the Labor Party of this country. And I think social democracy in general, um, obviously Labour had its great sort of decline and fall um, after, you know, Gordon Brown and, and the finan- the financial crisis when, you know, I, I don't know if you know the term Keynesian economics um, in, yeah, so that was sort of the alternative economic model to capitalism or, or, or neoliberalism and Keynesian sort of, Keynesianism fell 
and sort of Tony Blair created this third way. And that obviously built a rift between the more traditional Labour supporters and Tony Blair also did try, didn't try to incorporate trade union influence into his party. He didn't um, redact the infamous policies of Mrs. Thatcher um, regarding their ability to strike. And since then, they've had no economic policy that can appeal in the way capitalism does. Um, and they've also got this legacy of just being bad with the economy. Um, they always have. They always seem to screw it up. Um, you know, you can't just tax and spend. People understand that now. Um, and there's as well as this now in this age of identity politics, there is this very common question now that I would say more right wing commentators always ask Labour MPs when they come on air, they go, can you define a woman? And most of them can't answer. Most of them can't answer. And that's driven away a lot of people. It, it, it's fundamentally a crisis of identity. This um, writer called Patrick Diamond has written far better than I can explain and in depth on this. So if you want to know more, do, do look him up. He's, he's very good at that, uh, explaining why. Yeah, it's a uh, universal problem. We're having the same thing over here with our, you know, even inside our Democratic Party, which is our left yeah. party, you have the, the center left. And then you have the social democratic wing that's yeah. getting more and more progressive and they <laughs> never the twain will meet apparently, except when there's an election to be had, it's the same thing. And it's more social and economic stuff. It's kind of, it's really interesting how universally, how much of this, since you brought it up, how much of this falls on Keir Starmer? Now to be fair to the labor party, they've bounced back from the, from the Corbin years and the disaster that that was, they did decently well in the recent local elections. They did pretty well, especially in London, places like this. So it's not the house on fire, but at the same time, a lot of people are looking at all the problems Boris Johnson's having and then looking at their own side up front and going, man, we should we should be doing better than this against what Boris Johnson's doing. Uh, a lot of labor folks have been saying those sorts of things. Is that all far on Keir Starmer or is Boris Johnson just that Teflon? Where's the mix of those two meet? I think Sakir Starmer um hasn't been a force of personality he hasn't brought a spark or a fire um to the way he speaks he keeps missing open goals there were so many to so many criticisms that he could have weaponized during covid um and i think that was a big thing for his leadership people didn't know what he stood for apart from just saying oh this policy is too late or this policy is wrong without actually saying what he would bring to the table um but you could argue that um you know in this sort of economic situation especially you know Jeremy Corbyn a leader like that a figurehead who a motive you know po populist figurehead could be what Labour would need to win an election not that I'm saying you know it, it would be it would be good but I think he weaponized the anti-austerity narrative incredibly well he mobilized the youth vote incredibly well um, and it doesn't look like Starmer really is doing that at the moment um, obviously, we're regarding the cost of living and things like that. He's not stirring the masses in the way that Labour can. And um, as we were going back to the identity crisis, this it's happened throughout Europe in their social democratic parties as well. And it's it's a trend. It's a very interesting trend to see, you know, since 2008, um, all these, yeah, these social democratic parties in the centre-left kind of fracturing and then I suppose with you as well, you, you have the Nancy Pelosi's and then you have the AOC's and um, they don't they don't necessarily mesh well, but one of them has to catch up with the other at some point. 
Yeah, Allison Watson Brown joining us. Okay, so just how big an issue is the cost of living crisis? It's obviously you know front page. It's obviously dominating social media. You're there, we're not though. Turn the noise down on the news and tell us just on a practical level. Is this what everybody in in Britain and the UK is talking about? Is it is this the dominant issue of the time right now for folks over there? Yes, it's gone from changing the way you go to a supermarket. Um, you know, I'm a student and notoriously I'm poor, right? And uh, my sort of 25 pound a week food budget was my big thing. Um, and it was my kind of, it was my shop. But now what I would have to do is just kind of fill my basket up with the essentials until I hit my my budget mark. And then I just couldn't buy any more because that was it, right? And uh, luckily I'm in a position where, you know, I have, have a very good home life and my parents were able to help me out a little bit. Um, but there are a lot of people who aren't. However, right now, the weather's hot, people are happy, people can go out and they don't need to worry about heating their homes because families are choosing between putting the heater on and putting meals on the table, which is horrible. And it's not just that, it's, it's petrol, it's it's going places and if people can't afford to go out and buy their Starbucks coffee because they have to save money or buy their you know buy their pastry on the way to work that means the workers in those cafes and in those restaurants are losing out as well it's a never ending cycle of of pretty much just depression um i suppose the news in some way is not doesn't necessarily over exaggerate this it's it's true you see it everywhere and it's, it's the supermarkets especially um are all competing on their um you know get save money on this on this deal on that deal um and there was this huge um huge story about the government were going to ban two for one or buy one get one free on ready meals in their tackle to you know in their aim to tackle child obesity and they uh decided not to go forward with that in the cost of living crisis because you know any food's food right you need to feed your kids and yeah some people don't have a choice and um you know uh it caused a lot of backlash but actually sadly that's what we've we it's come to um but yeah that that's from my perspective as a young person and even more annoyingly, um, I coming from London, you now have to pay like seven pounds fifty for a pint of lager, and it doesn't make going out that fun. Yeah, that's ten bucks for uh, those of you from Logan that aren't up on the uh, pound sterling conversion to U.S. Yeah. dollars. That's that's an expensive drink. Uh, Alice Watson Brown. One last political question, and we're going to switch gears. Um, Boris Johnson. Uh, he he seems to just. Oh, it's over. Oh, it's not over. Oh, it's over. It's not over. Now we had the Lord Gate thing. We've had the ethical stuff. We've had the, the carry stuff over the last week or so. Uh, but he doesn't seem like he's really going to be going anywhere. I know there's a, a little bit of election fatigue. There's no clear cut replacement for him. Those factor in as well. He just keeps squiggling out of these tight spots and pressing on ahead. It, it's kind of remarkable to watch, really, isn't it? I think the last point that you said is probably the most influential of the fact why he's still there there is no real alternative replacement to Boris Johnson there's no real forefronter I mean there are whisperings about MPs sort of red wall anti-lockdown MPs so people like Steve Baker who wanted to leave the lead the COVID recovery group but their only political message is you know I was against lockdown there's no kind of 
philosophy about them as there is with Boris Johnson. Um, and I think also Ukraine, he's been praised personally by Zelensky for, you know, our solidarity and our, our help for them. But he, you know, I guess he he just keeps, seems to keep going. And um, whilst I've fallen out of love with him many, many times, um, I, I, I would see no one else who I would vote for. Um, but he doesn't, Boris Johnson is a man who is desperate to be liked. And if he left office, he wouldn't leave office in a crisis. He would leave because he, he wasn't elected, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. One of our UK friends kind of put it this way. Because I asked him how bad it, we knew the we knew the Partygate picture was eventually going to show up because that's just the world we live in. And he he kind of made it half joking, but it turned out too. He's like that that view of him walking through Kiev outweighed that Partygate picture. He's like, you yeah. watch, and sure enough, it did. He was right. All right, Alice Watson Brown, we're going to switch gears. We've been banging on the Brits a little bit. It's her turn. She's going to take a shot at our government, and specifically the FDA. We'll talk a little America with our friend Alice Watson Brown. Over in the UK, late of Bristol, but she's done with them now. We'll be right back. More hotel right after this. to her tell alice watson brown has returned to the program after far too long of a break we'll make sure it's sooner when you come back next time okay your turn you get to take some shots at us uh the fda now the fda got a lot of uh, press the last few years because of covid and things like that but their main job of regulatory stuff you touched in on it you've been talking about smoking you've got a piece out at center square talking about it this has just been their bugaboo for about pretty much my whole adult lifetime. Since you know, I was born in 80, so the last 30, 40 years specifically, it's just been a war on smoking and smokers. You're writing about it. Now we've gotten in it, and Joe Biden's been talking about this too, the methanol ban, and now they're talking about the age ban. Um, smoking's way down in America. Why is this still such a priority for the FDA? Uh, because the FDA seems to be confusing public health and politics again and again, as do many other uh, health. No, uh, you don't say. Political health organizations. And it's strange. I don't know why it's such a trend. Um, it's their priority because smoking and, well, yeah, drinking and doing bad stuff to your body of your own volition is the one thing that the government have not yet been able to properly control because it is something that is truly down to human agency and not the state. And it's same with the war on vaping and this whole ridiculous thing about controlling people's perception of risk. And that is not human. That, that is not how humans function. Um, and so 
and the problem that I really can't stand is that with these policies like the menthol ban, the vaping ban uh, and things like that, is that it's done using the the pretense that it's protecting minorities. It is done saying, oh, it's going to help women. It's going to help LGBTQ plus people. It's going to help race equality. And it's like, okay, so you're going to criminalize something, which a lot of minorities do, mainly African-Americans, whilst you're in an incarceration crisis, of which African-American citizens are overly represented is that that doesn't make sense and you're also it's just not on a human level this is it's on an economic level it stumps innovation in the sector um and and it stunts you know informed knowledge and it's having smoked from a young age I went to a boarding school in the middle of the countryside and it was sort of the only thing we were able to do to try and have some fun um I quit using vaping and you know flavored alternatives that were tobacco uh you know smoke free and uh, without that i would not have quit and i'm thankful for for you know the wonders of innovation for helping me do that but people do not quit smoking because their moms or the government tells them to they do it because they feel an innate need to better themselves and um the state of Colorado has, this is why I love America because you, you know, I love how you have separate governments that you can, it's an experiment, you know, a, a lab test as I used to learn it as. Um, the state of Colorado also tried to do a, they've also issued a statement saying they want to ban menthols. And um, the, the projected damage to their economy could amount to, you know, $4.6 billion, you know, with 5,000 businesses who rely on the sale of these products as well as their consumers, you know, to be hit by this. And alternatively, people are just going to be taken to the black market. So there are so many things wrong with the FDA's war on smoking and on alternatives. It just, you know, why don't you try and give people a little bit of a better life by empowering them? Then they might be able to make some decisions about how, about their health and about their life. It it just... It's nonsensical, and I've always said it. The thing to me, and it, it, it the heavy handedness and the nonsensical uh, bureaucracy of using a hammer to kill a fly for these things really becomes evident to me with the vaping thing. Because, on one hand, you're saying we're going to ma- spend this massive amount of taxpayer money to get everybody to quit smoking. And then, on the other hand, you're taking away the one thing that every smoker I've ever known that quit using it swears up and down is the best thing ever to get them to quit smoking. And they're doing it at the same time. And I understand the bureaucracy does that because that's how you get your funding and that's how you get your researching. That's how you get your budget items because you can do multiple things at once. But it's so nonsensical to say, okay, we're going to hammer people for smoking because of the health costs, whatever. Okay, fine. Give them the alternative. Oh, no, we're going to ban the alternative at the same time. That's just so blatantly nanny state nonsense that I, I just don't know how it's even defensible other than the fact it's a line item in a budget for thousands and thousands of people. And that's the, the reason it keeps going, because I can't find any other better excuse for it, because even anti-smoking people are like, yes, vaping helps. I mean, it's the most helpful thing ever for these folks. It, I'm not usually a fan of, you know, binaries, but you cannot be... Um, anti-vaping but without being pro-smoking you you just can't and and that the fdi are 
trying to go along these two the FDA, sorry, are going on these two parallel paths of policy that can never possibly meet and can never possibly be good for anyone. And the vaping, it's the honest thing, they they want to follow the science, but they won't follow the science that vaping is 99% safer or that the more you invest in companies which you know harm reduction initiatives the more businesses are going to innovate and provide new more accessible even safer products for people who want to quit and it's it's the same with the world health organization and it's what you were saying about funding is it's people like michael bloomberg who is a philanthropist and um has these companies called it's called campaign for tobacco free kids and this company is guess what funded by the world health organization and it leads you in thinking it's trying to stop child poverty and things like that but actually it just um you know pumps money it blackmails poorer governments like mexico to enact smoking bans and you know in order to they give them money uh to say oh you can spend this on healthcare if you if you ban this if you ban vaping because if you don't ban vaping, then we're not going to help you. And it's 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 awful. It's it's sort of corruption in that way. It's not only corruption, Alice Watson Brown joining us on her tail. It's not only corruption, it's incompetence. Because <laughs> we have we have evidence in recent memory of this. The World Health Organization, uh, Bloomberg and others, he's not the only one, he's just the biggest fish in that pond. So Bloomberg, the FDA. They spend all this bandwidth on this. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I do understand that things don't happen in a vacuum. They happen in a sequence. So when you have something like COVID, where it was so mismanaged and the corruption of the World Health Organization with China and other things, and you have the incompetence at the FDA, and you have people who needed to be able to believe in things like the like the FDA, like the National Health Institute, like whatever the equivalent, the NHS in England is the exact same thing in the UK. They need to be able to trust these folks. But even a major government bureaucracy only has so much bandwidth. You can't tell me when you're spending your resources and your time and your money and the public facing stuff at this because it's popular with certain folks. And then a pandemic hits and you're unprepared. I'm I'm going to judge you on that and go, well, maybe we should have spent more time on that. That actually has a huge graphic, horrible body count to it. Instead of this pet project thing that is more of a personal choice, even though we there's no smoker I've ever met in their life that doesn't know it's not bad for them. OK, yeah. right. But there's no way those two things aren't connected. And I, I know that's a little broad, but that's just the facts. You can't they need to spend time on things that matter. Like we just had a headline in the UK. Polio is back in the UK for the first time. Yeah, I just years. saw that. <laughs> Great. <laughs> but, um, but that's the point, though. It's like maybe you should focus on actual public health stuff instead of political public health. That is a financial and political cudgel to go beat people over the head with. That would, you know, mistake that kind of thing. I would be knocked off my chair if that actually happened. Um, no, I agree. That's a lot of people say that it's con conspiratorial thinking to, you know, connect dots. And as I agree with you, I wouldn't say I'm a conspiracy theorist, but it has just seemed that in the last few years, there is just this kind of um, emerging battle against just personal choice with the most ridiculous justifications for it. And I don't, I, I, I'm, I'm worried in a way. And I love the idea of the FDA of, you know, a, a health service for everyone. And 
in a way, a, a world, you know, a world health initiative. So we can draw talent from all countries to, to research and, and help people all across the world. That you can't, no rational person can be against that, right? But this, it's a very small amount of people who receive a very large amount of money who go, yeah, I'll try this just to see what happens. And I won't care about how many people it affects. And that is incomprehensible to me as to why this has been allowed to go on for so long. And as to why even a leader like, you know, Boris Johnson is still considering partnering with the World Health Organization. And it, 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 it flabbergasts me, it does. Yeah, we, we've... <laughs> Public health has turned into a misnomer because there's not really anything public about it. It's just government that needs to be yeah. more accountable. An unaccountable government is always going to be a mess, no matter what form it takes. Uh, Alice Watson Brown, outstanding stuff today. We'll link to your piece in the show notes, like we always do. Uh, it's been too long, but until we get you back on again, which is not going to be four months, it'll be a lot faster this time, mm -hmm. I promise. Uh, let folks know how they can keep up with you and what you got going on until they see you again. Sorry, could you repeat that? Sorry. Yeah, no worries. Uh, <laughs> so until we get you back on, let folks know where they can follow you, your social media and what you got going on until we see you again. Yeah. So uh, my Twitter handle is Alice Watson Brown, just at Alice Watson Brown, spelt A-L-Y-S. Um, and currently I'm just going to be doing a lot of reading and I'll be writing more, appearing more on radios and stuff. So do give me a follow on Twitter as that is where I post most of my appearances. So Yep. And she teased us with this uh, garlic pesto thing a couple months ago and has abandoned oh, yeah. Twitter Supper Club since then. We need you back. We need our UK uh, branch of Twitter Supper Club to up I their will. game a bit. Yeah. Looking I'll forward to that. more time to cook now. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Always a pleasure talking to you. We'll make sure to put all your information for folks to follow you. Alice Watson Brown, outstanding job as always. Talk again soon, my friend. Thank you. Thank you, ma'am. Tom Folk, welcome back to Herd Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Remember, I remember when I was a kid, everybody had those dare shirts, you know, dare to keep kids off drugs. And it kind of became a thing because they do these uh, local paper things called mug shots before the internet. Now, I don't know if they still have that or not, but now the internet, they have mug shots. Used to be a thing as if you got anybody arrested on drug charges wearing a dare shirt. Well, in the vein of that, this comes from our buddy, um, Keith Conrad, who runs the excellent a uh, little newsletter that has news tidbits we use frequently. Drug defendant makes a terrible wardrobe church choice church. Slip of the tongue there. He should have went to church. He wouldn't have this problem probably. Alabama man wearing a t-shirt proclaiming, quote, I'm too good for drugs with a big exclamation point, uh, was arrested for 
possession of methamphetamines and narcotic paraphernalia, police said. Alan Burnett, 60, was collared Thursday night in his home near Asheville, about 45 minutes from Birmingham. Burnett, seen at the right, was charged with a pair of drug counts and booked in the St. Clair County Jail. He was released early after posting a $3,500 bond. At the time of his arrest, he was wearing the purple T-shirt that declared on the back, I'm too good for drugs on the front. Previously, defendants who have been busted while wearing shorts shirts announcing i love crystal meth and who needs drugs no seriously i have drugs and an illinois man who was especially special arrested for possessing the quote making of a methamphetamine lab was nabbed while wearing a los polos hermano shirt for those you don't know that's the fictional chain of fried chicken restaurants that was the front for the meth operation for gus fring in the tv series breaking bad kind of makes me miss those dare t-shirt days We'll link to that if you want to see the picture. Uh, more heard tell right after this. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, you know, on our last segment, we always try to have some good news since we were talking about cost of living in the UK being such an issue, and it is. Let's talk about how some of those folks are responding to it. Uh, BigIssue.com. People in the UK are increasing their charity donations despite so many feeling the pinch of the cost of living soars. Research has found one in three people have increased their charitable donation over the past two years, according to an NGO, Human Appeals. Almost half, 40%, 46% say they expected to increase their charitable donations through this year, too. The most common reason people donate to charities is because they have a personal experience that connects them to the cause. News that many people plan on supporting charities over the next year when the support is so badly needed shows the generosity of people in these bleak times. More than four in five donate to charities on a monthly basis. Commenting on the research, Muhammad Ashaway, CEO of Human Appeal, said the research shows not only just how important charity organizations are, and have become to the nation at a time of growing poverty and financial need, but also how deeply committed the nation is to helping others in need. Even in household finances, unprecedented demands, people are unwavering in their support for their chosen causes, just as many need it the most, including themselves. It is increasingly encouraging to see the nation so committed to their chosen charities, as well as to see the hard work and commitment so many charity organizations in the UK have been recognized over the last few years. People surveyed believe the charities supporting children and family and those offering help to people with health care issues are the most urgent needs in the donations for the public. This comes, of course, off the heels of the pandemic where six in 10 families told the action groups that they needed help with essentials. As the cost of living crisis takes its toll, charities have warned that those are already struggling who will suffer. But Britain's reliance on food banks has increased at an alarming rate. Donations for the food banks have dropped while people have seeking help is rising. Staff of the food banks previously told the big issue they have reached a crisis port 
and need support. So good on folks that are helping out, but there's plenty of needs still out there. We're going to have that in the U.S. also, and as we've covered worldwide, there's going to be massive shortage of food, energy, fuel, and plenty of dark times to come ahead. If you can help, make sure you're helping. Make sure you're taking care of your nearest first, and that takes care of Herd Tell for today. We hope you enjoyed it. If you missed anything, make sure you follow up by subscribing uh, any of the podcasting platforms or the YouTube channel, however you want to watch or listen to the show. We sure appreciate it, but make sure you subscribe. Also, make sure you like it. Make sure you leave a comment, and if you would do us a favor and share it, we sure appreciate it. We don't do any advertising outside of our social media, so this has all been word of mouth as the show has grown, and we appreciate you greatly. We got more Herd Tell for you tomorrow. Of course, the Good Talk segments are there, the Twice on Sunday show that recaps it all. Make sure you miss it all. And wherever you and yours are, across the street or around the world, we hope you're well. We hope you're well fed. Can't wait to do it again with you next time on Herd Tell. All the music on Herd Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. So, love